Section 28 of The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government, Volume 1B. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley. The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government by Jefferson Davis, Volume 1B, Part 4, Chapter 12. Supply of arms at the beginning of the war, of powder, of batteries, of other articles, contents of arsenals, other stores, mills, etc., first efforts to obtain powder, nitre, and sulfur, construction of mills commenced, efforts to supply arms, machinery, field artillery, ammunition, equipment, and saltpeter. Results in 1862. Government powder mills, how organized. Success. Efforts to obtain lead. Smelting works. Troops, how armed. Winter of 1862. Supplies. NIDER and Mining Bureau. Equipment of First Armies. Receipts by blockade runners. Arsenal at Richmond. Armories at Richmond and Fayetteville. A central laboratory built at Macon. Statement of General Gorgas. Northern charge against General Floyd, answered. Charge of slowness against the President, answered. Quantities of arms purchased that could not be shipped in 1861. Letter of Mr. Hughes. At the beginning of the war, the arms within the limits of the Confederacy were distributed as follows. At Richmond, state about four thousand rifles no muskets fayetteville north carolina about two thousand rifles twenty five thousand muskets charleston south carolina about two thousand rifles twenty thousand muskets augusta georgia about three thousand rifles twenty eight thousand muskets mount vernon alabama about two thousand rifles twenty thousand muskets Baton Rouge, Louisiana, about 2,000 rifles, 27,000 muskets. In total, 15,000 rifles, 120,000 muskets. There were at Richmond about 60,000 old flint muskets, and at Baton Rouge about 10,000 old Hall's rifles and carbines. At Little Rock, Arkansas, there were a few thousand stands, and a few at the Texas Arsenal, increasing the aggregate of serviceable arms to about 143,000. Add to these the arms owned by the several states and by military organizations, and it would make a total of 150,000 for the use of the armies of the Confederacy. The rifles were of the caliber 54, known as Mississippi Rifles, except those at Richmond taken from Harper's Ferry, which were of the new model caliber, 58. The muskets were the old flintlock caliber, 69, altered to percussion. There were a few boxes of sabers at each arsenal, and some short artillery swords. A few hundred holster pistols were scattered about. There were no revolvers. 
there was before the war little powder or ammunition of any kind stored in the southern states and this was a relic of the war with mexico it is doubtful if there were a million of rounds of small arms cartridges the chief store of powder was that captured at norfolk there was besides a small quantity at each of the southern arsenals in all sixty thousand pounds chiefly old cannon powder the percussion caps did not exceed one quarter of a million and there was no lead on hand there were no batteries of serviceable field artillery at the arsenals but a few old iron guns mounted on griboval carriages fabricated about eighteen twelve the states and the volunteer companies did however possess some serviceable batteries but there were neither harness saddles bridles blankets nor other artillery or cavalry equipments to furnish one hundred and fifty thousand men on both sides of the mississippi in may eighteen sixty one there were no infantry accoutrements no cavalry arms or equipments no artillery and above all no ammunition nothing save arms and these almost wholly the old pattern smooth-bore muskets altered to percussion from flintlocks within the limits of the confederate states the arsenals had been used only as depots and no one of them except that at fayetteville north carolina had a single machine above the grade of a foot lab except at harper's ferry armory all the work of preparation of material had been carried on at the north not an arm not a gun not a gun carriage and except during the mexican war scarcely a round of ammunition had for fifty years been prepared in the confederate states there were consequently no workmen or very few skilled in these arts powder save perhaps for blasting had not been made at the south no saltpeter was in store at any southern port it was stored wholly at the north there were no worked mines of lead except in virginia and the situation of those made them a precarious dependence the only cannon foundry existing was at richmond copper so necessary for field artillery and for percussion caps was just being obtained in east tennessee there was no rolling mill for bar iron south of richmond and but few blast furnaces and these with trifling exceptions were in the border states of virginia and tennessee the first efforts made to obtain powder were by orders sent to the north which had been early done both by the confederate government and by some of the states these were being rapidly filled when the attack was made on fort sumter the shipments then ceased niter was contemporaneously sought for in north alabama and tennessee between four and five hundred tons of sulphur were obtained in new orleans at which place it had been imported for use in the manufacture of sugar preparations for the construction of a large powder mill were promptly commenced by the government and two small private mills in east tennessee were supervised and improved on june first eighteen sixty one there was probably two hundred and fifty thousand pounds only chiefly of cannon powder and about as much nitre which had been imported by georgia 
there were the two powder mills above mentioned but we had no experience in making powder or in extracting nitre from natural deposits or in obtaining it by artificial beds for the supply of arms an agent was sent to europe who made contracts to the extent of nearly half a million dollars some small arms had been obtained from the north and also important machinery the machinery at harper's ferry armory had been saved from the flames by the heroic conduct of the operatives headed by mr armistead m ball the master armorer of the machinery so saved that for making rifle muskets was transported to richmond and that for rifles with sword bayonets to fayetteville north carolina in addition to the injuries suffered by the machinery the lack of skilled workmen caused much embarrassment in the meantime the manufacture of small arms was undertaken at new orleans and prosecuted with energy though with limited success in field artillery the manufacturer was confined almost entirely to the tredegar works in richmond some castings were made in new orleans and attention was turned to the manufacture of field and siege artillery at nashville a small foundry at rome georgia was induced to undertake the casting of the three-inch iron rifle but the progress was very slow the state of virginia possessed a number of old four-pounder iron guns which were reamed out to get a good bore and rifled with three grooves after the manner of parrot the army at harper's ferry and that at manassas were supplied with old batteries of six-pounder guns and twelve-pounder howitzers a few parrot guns purchased by the state of virginia were with general magruder at big bethel for the ammunition and equipment required for the infantry and artillery a good laboratory and workshop had been established at richmond the arsenals were making preparations for furnishing ammunition and knapsacks but generally what little was done in this regard was for local purposes such was the general condition of ordnance and ordnance stores in may eighteen sixty one the progress of development however was steady a refinery of saltpeter was established near nashville during the summer which received the nitre from its vicinity and from the caves in east and middle tennessee some inferior powder was made at two small mills in south carolina north carolina established a mill near raleigh and a stamping mill was put up near new orleans and powder made there before the fall of the city small quantities were also received through the blockade it was estimated that on january first eighteen sixty two there were fifteen hundred seacoast guns of various caliber in position from evansport on the potomac to fort brown on the rio grande if their caliber was averaged at thirty-two pounder and the charge at five pounds it would at forty rounds per gun require six hundred thousand pounds of powder for them the field artillery say three hundred guns with two hundred rounds to the piece would require one hundred and twenty five thousand pounds and the small arm cartridges say ten million would consume one hundred and twenty five thousand pounds more 
making in all eight hundred and fifty thousand pounds deducting two hundred and fifty thousand pounds supposed to be on hand in various shapes and the increment is six hundred thousand pounds for the year eighteen sixty one of this perhaps two hundred thousand pounds had been made at the tennessee and other mills leaving four hundred thousand pounds to be supplied through the blockade or before the beginning of hostilities the liability of powder to deteriorate in damp atmospheres results from the impurity of the nitre used in its manufacture and this it is not possible to detect by any of the usual tests security therefore in the purchase depends on the reliability of the maker to us who had to rely on foreign products and the open market this was equivalent to no security at all it was therefore as well for this reason as because of the precariousness of thus obtaining the requisite supply necessary that we should establish a government powder mill it was our good fortune to have a valuable man whose military education and scientific knowledge had been supplemented by practical experience in a large manufactory of machinery he general g w Raines, was at the time resident in the state of new york but when his native state north carolina seceded from the union and joined the confederacy true to the highest instincts of patriotism he returned to the land of his birth and only asked where he could be most useful the expectations which his reputation justified caused him to be assigned to the task of making a great powder mill which should alike furnish an adequate supply and give assurance of its possessing all the requisite qualities this problem which under the existing circumstances seemed barely possible was fully solved not only was powder made of every variety of grain in exact uniformity in each but the nitre was so absolutely purified that there was no danger of its deterioration in service. Had Admiral Semmes been supplied with such powder, it is demonstrated by the facts which have since been established that the engagement between the Alabama and the Kearsarge would have resulted in a victory for the former. These government powder mills were located at Augusta, Georgia, and satisfactory progress was made in the construction during the year all the machinery including the very heavy rollers was made in the confederate states contracts were made abroad for the delivery of nitre through the blockade and for obtaining it immediately we resorted to caves tobacco houses cellars etc the amount delivered from tennessee was the largest item in the year's supply but the whole was quite inadequate to existing and prospective needs the consumption of lead was mainly met by the virginia lead mines at withville the yield from which was from sixty to eighty thousand pounds per month lead was also collected by agents in considerable quantities throughout the country and the battlefield of manassas was closely gleaned from which much lead was collected a laboratory for the smelting of other ores was constructed at petersburg virginia and was in operation before midsummer of eighteen sixty two 
By the close of 1861, eight arsenals and four depots had been supplied with materials and machinery, so as to be efficient in producing the various munitions and equipments, the want of which had caused early embarrassment. Thus a good deal had been done to produce the needed material of war and to refute the croakers who found in our poverty application for the maxim ex nihilo nihil fit. The troops were, however, still very poorly armed and equipped. The old smooth-bore musket was the principal weapon of the infantry. The artillery had mostly the six-pounder gun and the twelve-pounder howitzer, and the cavalry were armed with such various weapons as they could get. Sabres, horse pistols, revolvers, sharps carbines, musketoons, short infield rifles, Holtz carbines, muskets cut off, etc. Equipments were, in many cases, made of stout cotton domestic, stitched in triple folds and covered with paint or rubber varnish. But poor as were the arms, enough of them, such as they were, could not be obtained to arm the troops pressing forward to defend their homes and their political rights. In December 1861, arms purchased abroad began to come in, and a good many infield rifles were in the hands of the troops at the Battle of Shiloh. The winter of 1862 was the period when our ordnance deficiencies were most keenly felt. Powder was called for on every hand, and the equipments most needed were those we were at least able to supply. The abandonment of the line of the Potomac and the upper Mississippi from Columbus to Memphis did somewhat. However, the pressure for heavy artillery, and after the fall of 1862, when the powder mills at Augusta had got into full production, there was no further inability to meet all requisitions for ammunition. To provide the iron needed for cannon and projectiles, it had been necessary to stimulate by contracts the mining and smelting of its ores. But it was obviously beyond the power of even the great administrative capacity of the Chief of Ordnance, General J. Gorgas, to whose monograph I am indebted for these details, to add to his already burdensome labors the numerous and increasing cares of obtaining the material from which ammunition, arms, and equipments were to be manufactured. On his recommendation, a niter and mining borough was organized, and Colonel St. John, who had been hitherto assigned to duty in connection with procuring supplies of niter and iron, was appointed to be chief of this bureau. A large, difficult, and most important field of operation was thus assigned to him, and well did he fulfill its requirements. To his recent experience was added scientific knowledge, and to both, untiring systematic industry and his heart's thorough devotion to the cause he served the tree is known by its fruit and he may confidently point to results as the evidence on which he is willing to stand for judgment briefly they will be noticed niter was to be obtained from caves and other like sources and by the formation of niter beds some of which had previously been begun at richmond these beds were located at Columbia, South Carolina, Charleston, Savannah, Augusta, Mobile, Selma, and various other points. At the close of 1864, there were 2,800,000 feet of earth collected, 
and in various stages of nitrification, of which a large proportion was assumed to yield one and a half pound of nitre per foot of earth. The whole country was laid off into districts, each of which was under the charge of an officer who obtained details of workmen from the army and made his monthly reports. Thus the nitre production in the course of a year was brought up to something like half of the total consumption. The district from which the most constant yield could be relied on had its chief source at Greensboro, North Carolina, a region which had no nitre caves in it. The nitre was obtained from lixiviation of nitrous earth found under old houses, barns, etc. The supervision of the production of iron, lead, copper, and all the minerals which needed development, as well as the manufacture of sulfuric and nitric acids, the later required for the supply of the fulminate of mercury for percussion caps, without which the firearms of our day would have been useless, was added to the Nitre Bureau. Such was the progress that, in a short time, the Bureau was aiding or managing some twenty to thirty furnaces with an annual yield of fifty thousand tons or more of pig iron. The lead and copper smelting works erected were sufficient for all wants, and the smelting of zinc of good quality had been achieved. The chemical works were placed at Charlotte, North Carolina, to serve as a reserve when the supply from abroad might be cut off. In equipping the armies first sent into the field, the supply of accessories was embarrassingly scant. There were arms, such as there were, for over 100,000 men, but no accoutrements nor equipments, and a meager supply of ammunition. In time, the knapsacks were supplanted by haversacks, which the women could make. But soldiers' shoes and cartridge boxes must be had. Leather was also needed for artillery harness and for cavalry saddles, and as the amount of leather which the country could furnish was quite insufficient for all these purposes, it was perforce apportioned among them. Soldiers' shoes were the prime necessity. Therefore, a scale was established by which first shoes and then cartridge boxes had the preference. After these, artillery harness and then saddles and bridles. To economize leather, the waist and cartridge box belts were made of prepared cotton cloths stitched in three or four thicknesses. Bridle reins were likewise so made and then cartridge boxes were thus covered, except the flap. Saddle skirts, too, were made of heavy cotton cloth, strongly stitched. To get leather, each department procured its quota of hides, made contracts with the tanners, obtained hands for them by exemptions from the army, got transportation over the railroads for the hides and for supplies. To the varied functions of this bureau, was finally added that of assisting the tanners to procure the necessary supplies for the tanneries. A fishery even was established on Cape Fear River to get oil for mechanical purposes, and at the same time food for the workmen. In cavalry equipments the main thing was to get a good saddle which would not hurt the back of the horse. For this purpose various patterns were tried, and reasonable success was obtained. One of the most difficult wants to supply in this branch of the service 
was the horseshoe for cavalry and artillery. The want of iron and of skilled labor was strongly felt. Every wayside blacksmith's shop accessible, especially those in and near the theater of operations, was employed. These again had to be supplied with material, and the employees exempted from service. It early became manifest that great reliance must be placed on the introduction of articles of prime necessity through the blockaded ports. A vessel capable of stowing 650 bales of cotton was purchased by the agent in England and kept running between Bermuda and Wilmington. Some 15 to 18 successive trips were made before she was captured. Another was added, which was equally successful. These vessels were long, low, rather narrow, and built for speed. They were mostly of pale sky color, and with their lights out and with fuel that made little smoke, they ran to and from Wilmington with considerable regularity. Several others were added, and devoted to bringing in ordnance, and finally general supplies. Depots of stores were likewise made at Nassau and Havana. Another organization was also necessary, that the vessels coming in through the blockade might have their return cargoes promptly on their arrival. These resources were also supplemented by contracts for supplies brought through Texas from Mexico. The arsenal in Richmond soon grew into very large dimensions, and produced all the ordnance stores that the army required, except cannon and small arms, in quantities sufficient to supply the forces in the field. The arsenal at Augusta was very serviceable to the armies serving in the south and west, and turned out a good deal of field artillery complete. The government powder mills were entirely successful. The arsenal and workshops at Charleston were enlarged, steam introduced, and good work done in various departments. The arsenal at Mount Vernon, Alabama, was moved to Selma in that state, where it grew into a large and well-ordered establishment of the first class. Mount Vernon Arsenal was dismantled and served to furnish lumber and timber for use elsewhere. At Montgomery, shops were kept up for the repair of small arms and the manufacture of articles of leather. There were many other small establishments and depots. The chief armories were at Richmond and Fayetteville, North Carolina. The former turned out about 1,500 stands per month, and the latter only 400 per month, for want of operatives. To meet the want of cavalry arms, a contract was made for the construction in Richmond of a factory for Sharps carbines. This being built, it was then converted into a manufactory of rifle carbines, caliber 58. Smaller establishments grew up at Asheville, North Carolina, and at Tallahassee, Alabama. A great part of the work of the armories consisted in the repair of arms. In this manner, the gleanings of the battlefields were utilized. Nearly 10,000 stands were saved from the field of Manassas, and from those about Richmond in 1862, about 25,000 excellent arms. All the stock of inferior arms disappeared from the armories during the first two years of the war and were replaced by a better class of arms, rifled and percussioned. Placing the good arms lost previous to July 1863 
at one hundred thousand, there must have been received from various sources four hundred thousand stands of infantry arms in the first two years of the war. Among the obvious requirements of a well-regulated service was one central laboratory of sufficient capacity to prepare all ammunition and thus to secure the vital advantage of absolute uniformity. Authority was therefore granted to concentrate this species of work at Macon, Georgia. Plans of the buildings and of the machinery required were submitted and approved, and the work was begun with energy. The pile of buildings had a facade of 600 feet, was designed with taste, and comprehended every possible appliance for good and well-organized work. The buildings were nearly ready for occupation at the close of the war, and some of the machinery had arrived at Bermuda. This project preceded that of a general armory for the Confederacy and was much nearer completion. These, with the admirable powder mills at Augusta, would have been completed, and with them the government would have been in a condition to supply arms and ammunition to 300,000 men. To these would have been added a foundry for heavy guns at Selma or Briarfield, Alabama, where the strongest cast iron in the country had been made. Thus has been briefly sketched the development of the resources from which our large armies were supplied with arms and ammunition. While our country was invaded on land and water by armies much larger than our own, will be seen under what disadvantages our people successfully prosecuted the, to them, new pursuits of mining and manufacturing. The chief of ordnance was General J. Gorgas, a man remarkable for his scientific attainment, for the highest administrative capacity and moral purity, all crowned by zeal and fidelity to his trust, in which he achieved results greatly disproportioned to the means at his command. He closes his excellent monograph in the following words. Quote, we began in April 1861 without an arsenal, laboratory, or powder mill of any capacity, and with no foundry or rolling mill, except in Richmond, and before the close of 1863, or within a little over two years, we supplied them. During the harassments of war, while holding our own in the field defiantly and successfully against a powerful enemy crippled by a depreciated currency throttled with a blockade that deprived us of nearly all the means of getting material or workmen obliged to send almost every able-bodied man to the field unable to use the slave labor with which we were abundantly supplied except in the most unskilled departments of production hampered by want of transportation even of the commonest supplies of food with no stock on hand even of articles such as steel copper leather iron which we must have to build up our establishments against all these obstacles in spite of all these deficiencies we persevered at home as determinedly as did our troops in the field against a more tangible opposition and in that short period created almost literally out of the ground foundries and rolling mills at selma richmond atlanta and macon smelting works at petersburg chemical works at charlotte north carolina a powder mill far superior to any in the united states and unsurpassed by any across the ocean 
and a chain of arsenals, armories, and laboratories equal in their capacity and their improved appointments to the best of those in the United States, stretching link by link from Virginia to Alabama. The same officer writes, quote, It was a charge often repeated at the North against General Floyd that as Secretary of War he had, with traitorous intent, abused his office by sending arms to the South just before the secession of the states. The transactions which gave rise to this accusation were in the ordinary course of an economical administration of the War Department. After it had been determined to change the old flintlock muskets which the United States possessed to percussion, it was deemed cheaper to bring all the flintlock arms in the store at southern arsenals to the northern arsenals and armories for alteration, rather than to send the necessary machinery and workmen to the south. Consequently, the southern arsenals were stripped of their deposits, which were sent to Springfield, Watervillette, Pittsburgh, St. Louis, and other points. After the conversion had been effected, the denuded southern arsenals were again supplied with about the same number, perhaps slightly augmented, that had formerly been stored there. The quota deposited at the Charleston arsenal, where I was stationed in 1860, arrived there full a year before the opening of the war. The charge was made early in the war that I was slow in procuring arms and munitions of war from Europe. We were not only in advance of the government of the United States in the markets of Europe, but the facts presented in the following extracts from the letter of our agent, Caleb Hughes, dated December 30th, 1861, and addressed to Major C.C. C. Anderson, will serve to place the matter in its proper light. Quote, London, December 30th, 1861. Dear Major, we are all waiting with almost breathless anxiety for the arrival of the answer from the United States to the unqualified demand of England for the captured commissioners. Will Mr. Lincoln disregard the international writ of habeas corpus served by Great Britain? We shall soon know. If the prisoners are given up, the affair will result in great inconvenience to us in the way of shipping goods. I have now more than enough to load three Bermudas and cannot ship a package, though I have a steamer off the wharf all ready to receive her cargo. We are literally fighting two governments here. Government watchmen guard the wharf where our goods are stowed, and others in the neighborhood night and day, and the wharfinger has orders not to ship or deliver by land or water any goods marked W.D without first acquainting the Honorable Board of Customs. I have applied myself to ship to Bermuda, offering to give bonds to double the amount of value of the goods, that they should be held in Bermuda, subject to the direction of Her Majesty's representative in Bermuda. I have applied for permission to ship to Cardenas, agreeing to hold the goods subject to the order of the Spanish authorities. But all without avail and our army must suffer for the want of blankets, overcoats, shoes, socks, field forges, arms, and ammunition, which have been collected to an amount more than double that I have yet received. 
it is miserable to have to look at the immense pile of packages in the warehouse at st andrew's wharf and not be able to send anything only read the following twenty-five thousand rifles two thousand barrels of powder five hundred thousand caps ten thousand friction tubes five hundred thousand cartridges thirteen thousand accoutrements thirteen thousand knapsacks thirteen thousand gun slings forty four thousand three hundred and thirty eight pairs of socks sixteen thousand four hundred and eighty four blankets two hundred and twenty six saddles saddler's tools artillery harness leather etc very truly yours caleb hughes End quote. End of chapter twelve recording by bill mosley lano county texas u s a